you think about the future, we're going to have cities that are going to have autonomous cars. We're going to have buildings that are going to sense the way we walk. We're going to have um, aqueducts that are going to know whether or not the water that you're drinking is safe or not. We're going to have processes in the city that's going to take, for example, food waste and create energy out of that food waste. And all, the, all of those things are actually happening here. Here is where we create the knowledge for those things to be possible. And that really is what drives me. We live in a world of smart things. Smart phones, smart home devices, smart appliances, smart cars, maybe smart people. Never have I thought of something called smart floors until I met Dr. Juan Caicedo. Before we interviewed Juan, we had the chance to take a tour around his lab. Now, I've been in many labs in my travels, but this wasn't like any other lab. This was a civil engineering lab at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. Part workshop, part model, all dust and rubble. The whole thing looked like a set for your latest superhero downtown showdown. The experiments were scaled to real-life proportions. The simulations reflected the consequences of natural disasters, and the level of thinking towards the team's solutions is truly at monumental levels of innovation. This is where we would meet Juan and where we would talk about some groundbreaking things. We literally conducted this interview on top of an earthquake simulator platform, and it couldn't be any more appropriate. A large part of my childhood was in a quaint town called Saratoga, nestled on the west side of Silicon Valley, rooted in the San Francisco Bay Area, and situated near the San Andreas fault line. Like many from the area, you don't forget when the earth shakes. I have vivid memories of the 1989 earthquake that killed more than 60 people and destroyed parts of the Bay Bridge. The same thing can be said for Juan. His experiences as a child growing up in earthquake-prone Colombia motivated him to pursue a career in urban and civil engineering. Now he believes the next big thing is the very thing we probably all take for granted the most, the things we stand on. Juan believes that smart floors have the potential to impact a great many things, from conservation and environmental efforts to home design and human health and well-being. On this episode of Of Note, get ready to be floored. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Corder, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and Pop Fizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on invention, funding, entrepreneurship, growth, and so much more. So my name is Juan Caicedo. I am a professor and the chair of the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering here at the University of South Carolina. So my job as a chair is to enable people to do innovation as professors. So professors have basically two roles. They teach classes, which is what most people know, but the other half of their life is to actually create knowledge. And that's where the innovations come into place. 
So innovation comes in different forms. Uh, sometimes it comes as an idea of when a people, a person sees a, a need and the researcher might have an idea how to solve that need. And my job as a chair is to be able to support the faculty to be able to do their job and create ideas, be able to test those, those ideas in a lab like this, and then being able to uh, move those ideas into products perhaps and that can be then used by society. As a department chair, Juan empowers his fellow professors at USC and helps to move the research forward. However, in Juan's role as a researcher, he's also very experimental and forward-thinking. I'm originally from Colombia, and uh, back there we have a lot of earthquakes. When I was a kid, actually, we had an earthquake that was very strong and devastated the city where I was living. Uh, so that had a, a big influence on me. I wanted to get into earthquake engineering. And my dad is a civil engineer. My grandfather is actually what is called a roads engineer because civil engineering was not available when he, when he graduated. So I started my studies, uh, looked at the field of earthquake engineering, and then really fell in love with vibrations and all the things that you can do with vibrations. Moved to the States in 99 to do my PhD, went to Washington University in St. Louis, looked at how we can use vibrations to try to determine whether or not a structure is healthy or not, and then came to the University of South Carolina after that to work and do research and, and train students. From Columbia, South America to Columbia, South Carolina, Juan had a reason for making this specific move, the facilities and equipment at USC. Here in the department, we have a lot of different equipment that we can use and it's very specialized. We have, for example, in the area of geotechnical engineering, we have a centrifuge and that centrifuge spins uh, soil around so we can increase gravity, right? So that's a technique that geotechnical engineers use. It also has a shaker so you can actually simulate an earthquake as you spin the soil around. And there's only six centrifuges with shakers in the whole country. So it's a very unique type of equipment that we have here. We also have a, a, a pit right in the background where you can have a foundation and at the same time that you have part of the structures. You can do experiments in, in soil structure interaction. Uh, right now, for example, we have a small track and that track, you see the, the soil underneath the track, but we also see the structure, right? The rail and the ties in, in there and we can test the whole thing together rather than testing only the structure or, or only the soil. Juan and his fellow researchers aren't just tackling structural engineering problems surrounding earthquakes. In this lab in particular, we, have, we are five people working in this lab. There are all sorts of different things happening right now. We have a faculty member that is working in creating stronger walls so they can be uh, standing during uh, a tornado or a hurricane. Uh, in particular, he's looking at the way that the wall protects the, the people inside. So he is embedding plastic inside the walls uh, is a recycled material anyway, so it's something we're, we're throwing away. We have another faculty member that is looking at creating a new type of concrete that can be used for concrete ties in rail. Um, this, we hope, will extend the life of these concrete ties, making the railroads better, but also cheaper to maintain in the long term. And some of the work that I do, I'm looking in floor vibrations. Uh, we're looking in two aspects of that. One of them is we're, we want to measure floor vibrations to know what happened with people. For example, if, if somebody falls, we want to know that looking at the floor vibrations. But we also want to make structures more comfortable. Today, one of the problems that is happening is structures are vibrating a lot. 
uh, because of people walking on there or interacting with the structures. We want, we want to understand that a little bit better. Measuring and translating floor vibrations is one of Juan's key innovations. Right, so the idea about the floor vibrations uh, started actually not by me, but another faculty member here in chemical engineering. His name is Harry Plon. And he was listening to a, a medical doctor talk about the challenges that they had with elderly. And uh, one of the things that the medical doctor said is, well, people fall down, they spend a lot of time on the floor. And in some cases, uh, people forget to wear the devices in their neck or they just uh, don't want to bother people and they just don't call for help. When he was listening to this, he just come to the idea, oh, wait a second, we can probably do something with floor vibrations. And he just came to my office the next day, told me about the idea, put me in contact with the medical doctor, and then we started applying for grants to different uh, institutions. The Alzheimer's Association was the first grant that we got, and from that, they, 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 the research started. So what we hope will happen in, in 10 years is that the, this new knowledge becomes patents, right? That companies are now going to start using them to put sensors on the floors. And now you can have people who are indirectly being observed, quote unquote, by the floors uh, without the need of having cameras. So you can have, for example, a uh, person who is 80 years old and maybe has uh, a initial parts of Alzheimer's, uh, but that person is protected by the house itself because the house is actually sensing or feeling whether or not the person is okay or not. There are so many other applications as well. You can use this for security systems. Uh, you can use this to, even for biometrics in some cases. Uh, you can detect the gait patterns of the person. Uh, so there are many, many other applications that we've thought about, but we're still in the fundamental research aspects to create that knowledge. Essentially, you could think of Juan's idea as a smart floor, but it's more than just floors with sensors. So the biometrics aspects are really an aspect where you can actually try to identify what person is in the building. When you walk, every time that you strike the floor with your foot, we can actually detect those vibrations. And the way, the speed in which you walk, the stride in which you walk, and all those things are personal characteristics. So we can actually determine whether or not you come to work or not, for example. Juan's actually already implemented this technology in his own home, and the list of use cases just keeps expanding. A few years ago, so I have three kids, they're all uh, uh, boys, and so our house shakes by nature, that's, that's what our kids do, right? So a few years ago, I instrumented my house, and it was amazing when we look at the data that you can tell when they wake up, uh, you can tell when they take naps, they can tell when they go for lunch, right? Just by looking at the amount of vibration in the house. So you can actually use this to be able to determine whether or not the person is still healthy, right? If the person is changing patterns, that might be an indication that the person is getting sick. And then you can have a doctor being more proactive and going and calling the patient rather than waiting for the patient to get so sick that then needs to go to the ER. I really enjoyed meeting Juan and touring his large lab space. It's a very physical and tangible space. You know, sometimes you, you go to a lab and you see a bunch of uh, uh, you see a bunch of equipment, but you really don't know what's going on. His space was 
I want to say two or three stories because they had to sort of simulate, mm -hmm. you know, real world examples. And and again, it was just so physical. It was really cool. I think the other thing that that I really enjoyed was the conversation with him. Uh, it's so timely and. And he had you. You could you could just see all of the applications swirling around his technology and what he's looking to do. Um, you know, I do follow at a, at a distance uh, some of the trends in um, placemaking and, and urban design, just because often when we're working on 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 client work, we you know do have a tendency to look at how. Uh, retail spaces and brands are 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 established in the in those worlds. So, um, you know, his his research is so timely. Uh, he's he's looking at future proofing uh, cities uh, for uh, so, for example, for climate change, or he's looking at how um, how we can make things more sustainable. There's that net zero waste initiative for cities to try to make sure that they can sort of recir recirculate um, uh, the, the utilities that are, are used. And then certainly the digitalization um, piece, which is for him, I guess, the most important piece of that, that idea that, um, you know, if we can develop smart floors and smart buildings, they can help us with, uh, with our lifestyles and with understanding, you know, what's going on and, and how we can make them better. Yeah, I mean, for me, as soon as you use the word gate, my mind automatically, my mental image was actually of my time competitively horseback riding with horses, growing up with horses, and we actually do very similar kinds of testing, you know, of, of, of carrying horses forward and actually making them move so we can see if they're healthy, if they're favoring one foot over another. So we're, we're using their gait for biometrics, as, as he phrased it, but just for overall health. And it just never really occurred to me that we as humans could be and should be doing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the world he envisions is almost maybe, you know, you, you can see on your smartphone or your watch like what's going on in your home and yeah where's mom how active yeah yeah how is she doing <laughs> as a caregiver where's where, where is whomever no, that, that's a great point yeah your loved ones and and how they so yeah i i love his vision of the future and i i'd love to see where his technology goes this podcast is part of scribble south carolina's voice of innovation we celebrate and support the innovative activity across the state by connecting people to people. Visit ScribbleSC.com for exclusive interviews, tools, and resources. That's ScribbleSC.com. Big ideas often come with big asks. People, equipment, time, and as we all know, money. A big part that we do as professors is to seek funding to test our ideas. And that is uh, perhaps, um, uh, I wanna say, more than 20% of our time, right? When we have an idea, uh, we, we wanna test it. But for that, we need the equipment, we need the grad students to help build these specimens uh, and test our hypothesis and be able to actually do the, exp the experiments and look at the data. There are several agencies that we collaborate with this. Uh, the federal level, for example, we have the National Science Foundation, we have the National Institute, Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, Fed Federal Rail Railway, uh, administration and many other agencies that, that we work with, the DOE, DOT, and all these things. So what we do is we write these ideas and we look at what agency might be interested in moving this idea forward. 
So it's interesting. I think it's actually a connection between the researcher and the agency as well, because you as a researcher need to be aware of what the agencies would like to fund, right? And it's, it's coming to a point where you have interesting research for the agency, but also the agency would like to fund your research. We spend a significant amount of time writing proposals, and then those proposals go to those agencies, they get evaluated, and based on that evaluation, they decide to fund or not fund the, the, pro the project. Is it a surprise to maybe the young researcher or student how much writing they have to do? Yes, it is amazing the amount of writing that we have to do as professors and I think as graduate students as well. Uh, and the main idea is things happen but it is only useful when you communicate your findings with other people, right? And you can communicate these findings in a verbal way in conferences, but the most efficient way is to actually write it down in papers, in reports, or even in patents that they can be used uh, by companies. And all of this happens in writing. If you are a grad student, Juan simply says to enjoy it. One of the most fun parts that I had through my career as a researcher was when I was a grad student. Because when I was a grad student, uh, my advisor was very wise to try to protect me from other things, like for example, finding the research money, right? And other things that we as faculty need to take care of. When you're a grad student, you really have the freedom to be able to test things. You have a little bit more free time to be able to, you know, go to the park, go ride in the park, and something might come up when you're actually at the park riding something. So you saw someone driving a bike down the road and that sparked an idea, right? I, I, I think about the time when I was a graduate student and that was a really fun time. As a faculty, I think our innovation is a little bit more pointed because we have more experience of what things might work and might not work. So as a faculty, I have a lot of, a lot of fun when I actually write proposals because those are the stages when you have an idea and you're actually forming that idea. It's like taking a sculpture, right? You have a general idea and you start chiseling little parts of it until you actually make it a little bit more manageable. And then you, you send this to a funding agency and if, and if it gets funded, it's a lot of fun to have that and go through the process of testing whether or not those ideas are worthwhile or not. So it's actually really encouraging to hear that somebody, a, you know, a professor like Juan, really actually tries to, you know, his word choice of shielding his students from all these these outside distractions that keep them from really just focusing on, you know, the research, the tinkering. You know, this is actually really common advice I give. I come across interns or just student groups is, you know, take advantage of what the university setting really has to offer, whether you are that aspiring uh, researcher, that engineer, that business school student, you have such a wealth of, of pathways to go explore. And this is your time where you don't have usually near the outside responsibility of what real life is about to hit you with. Um, this is why I encourage a lot of, 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 especially the business school students that usually have some kind of app idea or whatever business idea to do it now. Because Regardless if it's going to work or not, who cares? You don't need it to make money right now. It's This is your time for it to fail and it be okay. The other thing is typically because you are a student, you know, you've got the business community that's usually more willing to cooperate and work with you. They see it as a, a way for them to give back to a student. And that door closes pretty hard as soon as you enter the real world. You know, that that is not as accessible. So students, live it up right now. Innovate yeah. now. Yeah, those are definitely the glory days. The It's it's great to be able to pursue your ideas uh, uh, without restraint and, and to have everybody who 
well, I mean, to be around people who are doing that as well, I think that is also pretty uh, a, a pretty fabulous time because nobody is worried about, um, you know, some of the things that they will be in 20 years, kids um, or, or potentially parents. You know, that's a big deal these days, taking care of parents. Um, and you're also not so worried about, uh, uh, you know, having to pay a ton of bills. I, I remember uh, someone talking about how, uh, you know, would they ever work as hard as they did back then? He's like, well, I, I, will, I will never be as hungry or as young again, yeah. right? And it's such a great time for you to take advantage of, of the big ideas that you have. Um, and you just need to go for it. I, I, yeah, I, you had asked, you know, I had started freelancing in a small business when I was 15, um, which was a hoot because like, how would people take, you know, take someone who's 15 seriously? I had to have someone drive me to meetings. Um, but I do, you're, you know, the way that people perceive you and also treat you to is, is to your advantage at that point. Um, and so it's a great time. Yeah. I, I kind of think back on when I was, with my two co-founders starting a business. I don't know if I even really thought of it as a business at the time. You know, we just kind of had this cool idea to start trying to help fellow people like our age transition into the into a professional setting. And it just kind of morphed into one. Uh, I don't know if my co-founders would appreciate me not viewing it as, as a business at that age. But I think back, it's like, I was starting a business. I was freelancing. I was on three different organizations. Like, I don't know how I had the energy back then for doing all that. But I think it was just the fact that it was accessible was what made it so fun. And why not? You know, at that age, I didn't need the business to make money. And we did eventually. But at the same time, it was like, if it didn't work, what was the worst Didn't that matter. came out of it? Here's the worst that came out of right. it. It led to where I am right now. Well, you, you get rapid, you learn rapidly from it, right? I mean, it's probably the other thing. We keep hearing about that all the time with a lot of these people. It, it, you know, they want people to fail off. And what a great time to to fail, learn, fail again, learn, you know, try something else. Maybe you have some incremental success, but you're not satisfied and you you, you continue to hone it. It's a great time for that because you, you there's, there's not any risk. There's a very low risk. And, um, you know, I've, in fact, I think it's the opposite. There's a lot of risk to people today, especially if they don't take their late teens, 20s, and even parts of their 30s and use it as a time to really do uh, interesting things. Um, I think that's what's going to set them up for decades of success. I think failures are actually a huge part of innovation. It's a huge part of research. Failure happens in many different ways. Like, for example, when you write a proposal for the National Science Foundation, only about 8% of them get funded. So we get failures in that way many, many times, right? Uh, A quick story about failure that I remember very clearly when I came to the United States was I started my PhD and I had a really difficult time understanding my professors because my English was not very good. And by the middle of the semester, I was calling my family and say, well, there was, you know, a nice couple of months in here, but I'm going to probably be back home in a month or two because I'm not going to be able to make this, right? Uh, I thought it was a big failure for me to come to the States. But then after that, I realized, well, I just need to buckle up and just try to push as much as possible and see what happened with these classes. And at the end, I actually performed pretty well in those classes. So one of the things that I learned with those experiences is that failure should not stop you from trying to accomplish what you do. Failure is only a way for us to learn what is what we need to do to be able to accomplish our own objectives. And that happens all the time in research, right? Many of the things that you see published or you see in the news is only what worked. But behind those things that work, there are hundreds and hundreds of attempts of things that fail. But that is really part of of the innovation uh, process. Hard work paid off for one. 
but he hasn't gotten to where he is today by himself. If somebody would like to pursue a career in being innovative and doing research, I think the main things that they, they want to do is persistence, of course, but also to be able to have a good team. I am only here because of the work that my grad students did in the past. I'm only here because the faculty that I, that I work with, because we are able to work together and having these, again, these multidisciplinary teams that we can move things forward. It is very hard to do innovation on your own. I'm not saying that it's not possible, it might be possible, but it's extremely difficult. And anyone that you see that is doing innovation is because they have a huge support team that is able to accomplish those, those objectives. And his thoughts on teamwork extend his fundamental thinking around innovation. Innovation is an interesting thing. I think sometimes it's just ideas. When, when, when we as engineers see a need, we just come out an idea of ways that we might be able to solve that. The next step is to be able to test those ideas, right? Uh, in some other cases, is as an incremental progress, right? Somebody says, uh, maybe we can do a concrete that is stronger. And you start thinking about it and do incremental progress on making that concrete stronger by adding some chemicals or by adding nanoparticles or things like that. So I think innovation comes in those two different forms. Sometimes it's just a revelation. It just comes to mind when you see the need. In some other cases, it's just uh, progress that is done over time. So as a professor, it's very important to stay innovative by going to conferences. Uh, that's one of the main things that we do. And sharing your research with others so you can receive feedback whether or not what you're trying to do is feasible or not. But at the same time, going and talking with other people about what they're doing and see how what you do can cross-link with what they do to create new things. So innovation happens at the edges of the disciplines, right? So, for example, it is very difficult for us to uh, recreate concrete. Concrete is already created, right? We can improve it by taking something from other disciplines, learning what they do in their disciplines, and trying to look at the edges of our discipline and incorporating those ideas. So it is very important for us as researchers to talk to computer scientists, to talk to uh, people in other disciplines, right? Uh, and learn what they're doing and see how what they do can help what we do. And for them to learn how what we do can help what they do, right? So that is very important. That multidisciplinary aspect is extremely important for innovation. Every, every single faculty does pursue these multidisciplinary aspects. So we understand that we on our own will not be able to write the computer code to do the data analysis, do the experiments, know about the fundamentals of physics of what's happening. So we actually seek other people to help us explain the physics, to write the code, to interpret the data. Uh, and, and with that, we create multidisciplinary uh, groups that then drive this innovation. Team dynamics is very important when you have multidisciplinary groups. Communication is extremely important as well because one of the challenges that we have is what we call one thing, other discipline might call it slightly different, right? So we wanna make sure that these groups are communicating effectively. We wanna make sure that these groups have the tools to be able to succeed. Juan talks a lot about attending events to stay innovative and abreast of the of the latest trends. That's so down your path, Laura. Do you wanna speak to that some? Yeah, events are almost, <laughs> If I'm not meeting with an innovator, you know, where they are on site, then I'm either hosting an event, speaking at an event, or probably my favorite is actually just attending events uh, and being just a bystander and watching and listening, observing and seeing how others are, are, are doing what, what they're, how they're organizing their ecosystem. Because really what events are about is create collisions amongst people that might not normally cross paths. You know, we can get so sucked into our, our daily work that we sometimes don't take that chance to just go meet and, and get that extra energy. In fact, I'm um, 
about to head up to uh, Rhode Island, of all places, uh, to attend the SSTI conference or the the State Science Technology Institute. Um, this is an organization that I'm actually really excited to start interacting more with. They're a nonprofit for fellow me's, sort of other fellow economic developers that strive to improve society through science, technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. So yes, we are. A, there's a herd of nerds of, of me, fellow me's out there that I, I'm excited to kind of just go hang out with and learn from. Is there some advice, since you do so many of these, do you have any advice for how one should approach these kind of events? I'm just sort of thinking about people who, you know, only go to one or two a year or every other year. And, you know, is there a way to consume the event so that it, it, you maximize the value to yourself? Avoid PowerPoint like the plague. Death by PowerPoint is probably one of the biggest things I really try to avoid in anything that I host. Or we just, you automatically just see people then looking at their phones as soon as they see it go up on the screen. So even when I host and even I, I publicly speak, yeah, I, I utilize PowerPoint, but it's very visual driven. There's very little actual uh, language on the slides because I really don't want people looking at. The PowerPoint. I want them paying attention to me. So in general, any, any event I'm hosting, I usually tell people, don't expect a PowerPoint in this meeting or this event that you know, this is really about creating as much interaction amongst people. I really actually, in, in general, uh, especially with we've got an event coming up called Sketch Room, I try to do very little talking. I really want to help ignite others to communicate with each other because that's how the ecosystem really starts to thrive it's not about you know me my office and and trying to get certain and trying to push a certain initiative it's really to help them realize they actually have the power themselves mm -hmm. now go off and do it so if, when you're looking at events and trying to because there's just so many of them it's hard to even prioritize where do you go and so i i would really encourage people um to really look at events that have opportunities for a high level of engagement, not just kind of sitting back and kind of taking information from a side that get hands on with it, because that's where you really learn or, or really get that that inspiration for whatever it is. So that that level of interaction that you walk away with meaningful next steps. Yeah, it took a it took a I, I got, it took a while for me to get around to it, but 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 I slowly became uh, a bigger advocate for even our folks at Design Sensory attending conferences, uh, and and I say this more for again the entrepreneur or small business who potentially is uh, listening. Um, you know, it's hard initially to carve out resources and time to uh, compel or or you know invest in your your staff at attending some of these events. Um, but what I noticed when we we a few years ago started to try to push that uh, was was one, they were first of all very appreciative that we would invest in that kind of resource. But two, when they went and they came back, they they, they there, there was a, just a different person. They're that, excited. Oh yeah, they yeah. were super charged up, and um and so I mean just even that energy that they bring back, the new ideas. To your point, some of the things that happened with maybe they had several collisions of ideas and people, and they bring all that back. It's it was such it's so it was great to see that energy brought back, and it is very helpful. So again, I would just encourage others out there if you've been reticent about. Uh, either you know uh, investing yourself or staff in events, um, you know, don't uh, do, certainly try it, see what you get back. But I think what you're going to find is a, a great amount of energy and ideas are going to come back to fuel it. It'll pay back. Yeah. Continuing Juan's thoughts on the importance of communication, there are a few tried and true tools in his utility belt for innovation. Something essential for me in my back every day with my my laptop, and then. 
uh, I don't know, my lunch maybe, I don't know, <laughs> uh, email. I mean, in reality, but it is, it's not necessarily email per se, but it's the fact that you've been able to communicate effectively with other people, right? One of the things that we really need to have every day is being able to have open communication with everyone. So this day is being able to do teleconference with other people, other researchers in other places, right? Being able to communicate effectively through email is extremely important. Being able to communicate with the grad students when they come to a meeting, right? That's, that's something that is extremely important for, for all of what we do as professors. Finally, as we've discussed with other professors, we wanted to know if Juan thought innovation could be taught. I think it is possible to create a environment for people to learn how to innovate. I think it's extremely difficult to teach it itself, but you can really develop the environment where you can foster that. This, that's one of the things that is important for us actually as instructors is realize that it's very difficult for you to teach and for to quote unquote force somebody to learn. All you can do is really create an environment and give the instructions to the students about how to do this, right? There are also many uh, very rewarding times of, of, the, of the work that we do. One that it happens to me almost every week is when I'm working with a student and you can see the bulb going off and say, oh, now I understand it, right? Now I understand where we're actually getting these results of this experiment. That, that is extremely rewarding for me as a person who is advising a student. There is also some, some moments where you're trying an experiment. I have a, one of the projects that we had many years ago was to try to develop sensors that are, that are moving sensors. So when you have a structure, most of the sensors are actually attached on the structure. The idea we had is, well, what if we start moving the sensors through the structure and then you can have a signal that is a function of time and space now. And we did the experiments and we would look at the data. It was just so evident that things that were just working beautifully that you just get this sense of, yes, you know, we were, we were able to dream this. We did the experiments and it just works great. So it is, it is really a good, uh, a good sense of accomplishment. My name is Juan Caicedo and those were my notes in innovation. This has been Of Note a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. And I'm Laura Quarter. Of Note is an original production by the South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering, with original music by Matt Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Scribble Innovation. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe and rate and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, keep pursuing your transformational ideas.